Hello and welcome to Conversations with the Voice of Reason. I'm your host, Benjamin Boyce, and today's conversant is Carib Marcel, who is a black woman living in Utah and working to thwart the encroachment of diversity, equity, and inclusion throughout her school system or the school system that her children attend. In this conversation, we talk about her own path towards enlightenment and overcoming her struggles that life handed her via destiny, fate, or her own personal human condition, and why she's standing up against DEI and why you should as well. I found her to be a wonderful conversant. Links to her work are down there in the description. Without further ado, here is Carib Marcel. I have not encountered someone with your name, so could you tell me how to pronounce it just so I'm Perfect. Carib. Carib. Okay. Uh Uh-huh. Just like the health food, the imitation chocolate. Is it a health food? It... (laughs) Yes, it is. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's literally imitation chocolate. So um, you can get it at the health food store. I think Leslie told me once that she used to drink it as a kid. So Yeah, no, it's it's some sort of... uh... Yeah, southern delicacy or something. Yeah, yeah. Where's your um? What's your uh? I Nationality. Guess your, well, oh, not yeah. that, but like your oh. your family history, kind of. Oh yeah. Where you guys grow up and. Okay, so I I have a unique, I'm I'm a rather unique person. Oh. I um I uh not that everybody isn't right, but <laughs> I um put myself into foster care when I was eight years old, and I lived in foster care. And I aged out, so I don't have family. Um, but my uh, my mother is like Sissy Spacek from the movie Carrie, mm. and um, the the my, mom or no the the girl, the mom. Okay. So growing up, my mother used to make me call her Your Majesty, and she called me Slave Girl. Oh. I yeah, I come from an interesting background, which is why I don't buy into the victim narrative. <laughs> okay, because you see what happens when the victim narrative is internalized. Yes, or absolutely multiplied. Wow. And so, but at eight, you were cognizant enough, or, or um, you had your wits about you to such a degree that you were able to initiate that process yourself. I was being groomed to be a prostitute, so. Um, yeah, so my options were that or to get out. And I have a very weird kind of, uh, I would watch Nick, Nick at night and I'd watch the Donna Reed show. And I was like, that looks a lot more normal than my life. So I decided to run away and I ran away to the police station and I Hmm. said, put me in foster care. I mean, on, in all honesty, I was expecting foster care to be like Annie. <laughs> hmm. And it wasn't. Miss <laughs> so Hannigan? In, yeah. <laughs> well, more or less. I, I lived in 18 foster homes in nine years. So. Wow. Yeah. And <laughs> then you aged out. Did you age out of that into college or how did yeah. you? Yeah, I actually. So I'm from Moses Lake, but I um Moses Lake, Washington. But I. Okay. um went to Cornish College of the Arts, so in Seattle, um, the the Performing Arts College. And I only lasted one year there. um, And I left there um, with an overdose of sleeping tablets because I had such an expectation that 
everything was going to be wonderful once I finally got to college. And, and it just wasn't, I was still, I was still the, uh, the misfit. It mm. was hard. You were a misfit among art students. Yes. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> so like <laughs> misfit multiplied. Yeah. So I, um, I was, I was super religious to the point that like when other people were saying they love the Backstreet Boys, I wrote, I love JC on my shoes and I meant Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so by the time I got, when I got to um, college, everybody was a lesbian or, you know, orgies or whatever Including else. The was, men. Yeah. Cause it was an art, it was an art school, right? I mean, it's Cornish. So I, I thought that, um, I, I remember being asked to uh, to do a monologue that was your creed, and I had said, I believe in Christ, but I also said, I also believe in the right to say, F you, almighty creator. And so, because I'm pretty open-minded. I've always been relatively open-minded. Like, I can have my own faith, and, and that's up to me, but I don't hate somebody who doesn't share it. Hmm. I've never never looked at the world through we're so different that we can't get along. So, <laughs> which is where the whole woke nonsense makes no sense to me because mm -hmm. I'm just like, how, how is this a good plan? Oh yeah. That's a good, <laughs> that's a good question. Um, it's, uh, it's kind of fascinating to see how moralism uh, or somebody's moral priors can obscure reality to such an extent that they can't see the outcomes of their morality. Yeah. Yeah. Even though they want the good, when they implement the good and it doesn't turn out to be good, they can't, it's really difficult for them to revise that or to see the consequences of their, you know, utopian fervor Yeah. or any, any given like moral outcome. It's uh, the, the that, ego, that there's something about that. That makes a lot of sense, except that what's happening right now is so bad that I think you actually have to put your head in the sand to keep going forward with it. Oh. And I mean, I saw it in 2020. I lived in Seattle and I was um, I was assaulted. I was jumped by a girl for carrying a sign that had Martin Luther King's face on it and said, character matters, reject CRT. They are using us. The girl who jumped me could have been my relative, we look that similar, but um, she jumped out of her car and she said, I will not allow you to spread your hate. And I was just like, this is Martin Luther King. What are you, what, what hate? I don't have hate in my heart. Hmm. And um, she could not see that. And so that weekend I went home and I stumbled across your videos and I watched them pretty much like a marathon um, hmm. for like three days straight. I just watched and watched and watched and then took a cold shower because, oh, <laughs> then cause it was, it was really hard. Wait, are you talking about the evergreen? It. Yes. Yeah. 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 And, and I thought, how in the world would anybody be okay with this? Because all I saw was hatred and othering people. Right. Mm -hmm. And especially the one woman that always stuck with me was that that young woman who was who stood up and said i'm not a victim 
And then I think the next day they pulled her out into the crowd and made her have a struggle session. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there was a couple of uh, black females specifically who either questioned or disagreed with the mob. And they both were, you know, put through, um, you know, shown the right path. Um, and they both recanted in one way or another. Uh, one girl uh, who has a reading disability was kind of put front and center and told to read something and thoroughly embarrassed. And then the, uh, you know, the internet to this day still mocks her, you know, as the evergreen student who can't even read. Uh, but, you know, without knowing the backstory that she was put in that position for disagreeing with the mob or for just wanting to hear both sides. Right. So... Yeah, it's, it is very hard. I work with people who, um, I work with kind of the inner city people of Utah, which I didn't intend to do. I Wait, literally... there's, a, there's a city of sufficient girth that it has an inside <laughs> to it in Utah? Utah is not what you think <laughs> by a long shot. By, by a long shot, it'll be exciting, to, fun to get into it mm. um, and hope my car doesn't get blown up. So. Oh, while you're waiting, while you're speaking to me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay. Well, um, that, that's a good way. How should we frame this discussion? Like, where, where do you want to head uh, so I know where we can begin and kind of yeah. get into um, your story and your trajectory? Because we already kind of did, 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 did right. Like, I know, and I am a jumper. Um, you're a jumper. Yeah, I um, I jump all over the place. Like like MC Hammer pants. Exactly, exactly. So I spelt milk. I'll, I like I made notes of everything that I wanted to to try to hit. Um, so one of the things I think that's that's important to hit is that people move to a state like Utah thinking that they're escaping it and there really isn't an escape, but oh. um, states like Utah, well, especially Utah, mental manipulation is the big thing here. And people, mental manipulation mm -hmm. or, or the colonization of the mind is another way of putting it. Okay. And so what happens, especially here, is that, uh, well, the Mormon church has a background has a history that if you aren't Mormon, you generally know. And that is, um, they didn't allow blacks into the church until the 1970s. Yeah. Now I'm not LDS, I'm former, but I'm not current. Um, but because of that, so many people are jumping onto the woke wagon and nobody will admit it, but that's what's happening is they're like, well, obviously we have this racist past that's not that racist. So how do we fix it? Mm-hmm. And so that's one thing. The um, yeah. the we have signs out here. We have these insane billboards that say, "Let me hold your gun until you feel safe. Let me hold your pills until you feel safe." So you're driving down the road, not thinking about anything, and all of a sudden there's suicide signs. <laughs> oh, okay, suicide. I thought that was like, uh, "Let me confiscate your confiscate your ability to self defend yourself." Um, I'm with sure the guns. that's part of, that's part of it too. But it's yeah. really like our governor goes and visits the high schools and the kids, especially with the LGBTQIA. Um, they will wear armbands that look like, you know, they they think they are they're supposed to look like the victims in the Holocaust, but who wore they the armband? Like 
<laughs> I'm like, who wore the armband? Yeah, the rainbow Stasi. Yeah. Yeah. And you just yeah. sit there going, and and the governor. Rainbow guard. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. So it's it's an interesting, and and that of course doesn't go along with the proclamation of the family. Um, and then What's they that? have the proclamation, proclamation of the family is um, it is a basically doctrine that was put out by the first presidency of the LDS Church, and ultimately. It says a lot of things, but the main basic line is that marriage is between a man and a woman. Mm-hmm. And that um, that all changed in, I think, about 2010 with Prop 8. And it seems almost like people moved over here um, to change, to completely and utterly change Utah. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing is elitism. So there's those are all of the <laughs> kind of things that we can talk about. Mm-hmm. What do you mean, so, el- elitism? Elitism. So, one example is right now in my town, small rural town. We moved here on purpose. Um, we are getting the exact same things that you're seeing in Seattle, the exact same things that you're seeing in California. Um, and then what you get is a progressive, we must move forward, even to the point of sending out student like um, newsletters that say, if your parents aren't kind, if they haven't taught you the right way to be kind, look for a better trusting adult, you know? (laughs) So we're getting all sorts of, um, yeah. Propaganda. Yeah. Much. Yes. So as somebody who grew up in abusive family, Mm-hmm. And then went into the foster care system mm-hmm. and sounds like you, you said you had like, what, 16 different places 18. you were in? 18. Mm-hmm. So you were going from place to place and having yes. such a destabilized childhood. And, you know, there's sexual abuse, it sounds like, or like the, the mm-hmm. beginnings of that in that. And you know, you're of a ethnic or racial minority so there's probably some racism or there's some interaction with your racial identity that you've seen um that you probably had to struggle with or grow through then to see the rhetoric of justice of social justice come in and accuse parents wholesale of child abuse and use i guess gender sexuality and race right to facilitate um, a wedge between the child and parent. It might be the case that you have a little bit of something to stand on to say, okay, listen, there, there's abusive parents and then there's not abusive parents. And you right. can't just say because parents aren't teaching you the right way to be kind that they're abusive parents. Right. And you can't determine what kind is for someone else. Um, I would say that there's nothing that I value more than being a mother. Um, I'm, I was only able to have one child. We, we attempted to foster, foster in, um, Seattle and you had to go down the route of being Hmm. trauma informed care. Okay. Hmm. Trauma informed care is worst practices. Oh, watching worst practices in. So I have some, some standing based on like what works well for what will work well for kids, what 
common things that have always done well for, for a human being, not just a child. But some of those common things would be having a sense of gratitude, um, taking responsibility for your actions, um, learning how to just look someone in the eye or have a conversation with them. So some form of self-confidence. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, but self-confidence rooted in self, not in the collective. Yeah. So yeah. what trauma-informed care tends to do is to give as many excuses as possible. I'm sure you're familiar with the ACEs scale. Adver okay, that's the adverse childhood effects of trauma scale. Okay. Um, and I'm a nine on that scale. You can only be a 10, although I'm sure... <laughs> I'm sure today that scale has turned into a whole bunch of different things. Yeah, there's probably a lot of inflation, trauma inflation. Right. <laughs> yes. So so being a nine, that means the only thing that hasn't happened to me in terms of you alluded to sexual abuse is no one has been killed in front of me. Every other okay. thing that you can imagine, yes. Um, and those are the people, we are the people, I guess, that need true resilience. I realized at a very, very young age that if I was going to succeed in any way in this world, I had to rely on myself and I had to become the person that I wanted to be. Had somebody taken the trauma-informed route, they would have said, poor you, you've been through so much, you can't possibly achieve mean world. And when I and when I say that, my foster brothers and sisters, they did make those choices. They still have a chip on their shoulder. They still have not. Hmm. Yeah, it's it looks like Jerry Springer. Um, they've had a rough life. So you would think that if somebody like me comes out and says, I've got some good solutions. I've got some good trainings. I can help you here, which I have done. I've gone to my school district and said, I could probably help you with this. And I've never said, I could probably help you with this, so pay me. Because my interest, like I said, I am fundamentally a mother. That's my identity, and I'm proud of it. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, but not just to my son. You know, I have nieces and nephews that I care deeply about. I've been a paraeducator. I've taught drama for years. I'm, so I'm in a lot of children's lives watching what they are doing to these kids is more abusive. It's worse than when I was five, I was raped for three days straight. Hmm. This is worse. Why? How could that possibly be? Because worse? it doesn't stop. The, the mentality is so it, crippling and long lasting. Yeah. yeah. Yes. And just the, the gaslighting, the constant telling you something that's not true. And there's no, there's no, no door that opens, no weekend that ends. It doesn't stop. And to watch them want to do this for no other reason, in my opinion, than power. Because none of these practices are working. Our kids are doing worse in school. Our kids are afraid to talk to each other. 
Our hmm. teachers are afraid. Our parents are afraid. Everybody just lives in this constant state of fear that doesn't end. And the people mm, in power... How? Go ahead. What, how does it what, not end? I know. How is it... How does this trauma-informed care lead to a state of constant fear and alienation? Oh, well, to, trauma-informed care, I think, leads to weakness. Okay. I think it leads to fragility. You know? Okay. Yeah. Robin D'Angelo's white fragility, but I think that it leads to true fragility, mm -hmm. inability to, you know, kind of take the world by both hands and say, I'm going to direct the way things are going to go in my life. Instead, you're waiting for things to happen to you. And you're also being constantly told the good things aren't going to happen to you. Hmm. But at the same time, you're also being fed, you're being given enough so I had a foster uh, what, daughter. Enough, enough attention? Or, or enough stuff. One of the worst agencies, in my opinion, was the Casey Foundation. There will probably be people who will be upset by that. But the Casey Foundation gave their foster kids a lot of material things, a lot of material opportunities. By the time we got into foster care, I had a foster daughter who opened up the pantry and pulled everything out and threw it all over the floors on purpose. And then she stood in the middle of my hallway and urinated. And then she grabbed a mop and painted me with it. Meanwhile, I'm calling the social worker going, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? And they said, just take some deep breaths and maybe sing her a song. And I'm just like, okay. that's not going to help. And I would say best practice you need to come out here. We need to sit and have a roundtable discussion and talk about expectations. Oh, no, because that could upset her. This is not healthy. This is harming children, and it's just not healthy. Mm. And it so if, <laughs> Sorry. And it, yeah, with the mentality being yeah. embedded, then you perpetuate that. Uh, form of self-victimization and, uh, yeah, I guess, perpetual fragility. So what were the steps for you to process and heal from your childhood? What were some of the hurdles and uh, the ways that you grew past that? One, I think I was very fortunate in that I didn't believe the majority of it was my fault. I could... I could look at life and maybe maybe I had a strange sense of maturity, but I could look at life and say, you know, I wasn't the 40-year-old man having sex with this person. Um, my mother's behavior was so off the chart. It wasn't, what happens for a lot of foster kids is that they want to go back. They they idolize their parents. They They fantasize that... Their situation is a lot better than it actually is. Um, mine was bad enough that that was not a, that wasn't an option. So mm -hmm. um, the first time I ran away from home when they, and I went to the police station, when they brought me back, my mother grabbed a screwdriver and put it next to my tongue and was going, to, and she's told me if I ever brought the pigs to her home again, she would tear my tongue out. So I knew, I knew I needed to leave and never, ever go back. Mm -hmm. And so for me, that was the first step. The second thing 
was I valued reading. So I read, and this is one of the things that's frustrating to me about representation. I read books about people who've overcome and had beautiful lives. And as a little kid, that meant I read The Secret Garden. That meant I met, I read The Little Princess. They didn't have to look like me. They could be British girls. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I still appreciated the story and I got something out of them. And then the other, the last thing was, um, well, two things. One, this is so, so tricky today, but um, I had a wonderful counselor. Um, his name was Paul Martin. I will never forget him. He was my counselor for most of my growing up. So mm -hmm. I graduated out of therapy when I was, I think, maybe in 11th grade. Um, but for every in every foster home, everything, he was a steady constant in my life. Mm -hmm. So, um, and then I had a teacher who told me once, Mr. Garza, and he told me, you know, I see that your life is bad. I see that this foster home is terrible. But the way your life is today is not the way it has to be in the future. You get to, you get to make your life what you want it to be. Hmm. But whether you succeed or you fail, it really is on you. <laughs> and so by the time I got to, when I got into high school, theater's just, it's kind of in my blood. And so when I got into high school, um, I thrived as an actress, even though I did deal with racism. I was in Moses Lake and people, the drama teacher would say, oh, I recognize that you're talented, but Moses Lake just isn't ready for a black actress. Hmm. Um, and hmm. it finally came down to my class literally sitting down and saying, yeah, Carrie deserves the play. We know she deserves the play. <laughs> you know, she deserves to play that role. Um, you can't do this. It's wrong. So, and hmm. that's basically, so yeah, I mean, did I you get the part? Yes. So how did you do? So I did well. <laughs> I mean, yeah. So, um, so yeah, I, um, it was Rosalind in as you like it. So another, one of the stupid things where, you know, black people can't appreciate Shakespeare. These, they're just, there's so many insulting mm. things. And, and I think the biggest thing that I've learned is to let most things roll off your shoulder. So, um, I had a, there was a boy when I was, um, in junior high and he would not drink out of the same water fountain as me mm -hmm. because he did not want to drink at, from a black person's water fountain. And was this, what decade was this? Like <laughs> 1940s or something? This is the nineties. Okay. So, so this is the nineties. And the thing yeah. is, is that like my friends, they got upset. They were just like, I can't believe he's doing that. And I just, something in my head just said, you know, kill him with kindness. And so we went, went to a very small little Christian school. And, um, by the end of the year, he said, Hey, can I write in your yearbook? So not the end of the year, but the end of, he was a little bit older than me. So his, his the end of his school. And he wrote in my yearbook, I was wrong. Hmm. And so sometimes we deal with racism by going, yeah, you're stupid, but whatever, you know? And hmm. I, I, the way I look at it is that there's racism, 
there's bigotry and then there's being a racist. Bigotry often means fear, in my opinion. Now I'm not any kind of a professional, so but um, bigotry often means fear of the unknown, maybe even preconceived notions of the unknown. But that's something that can be changed. That's something that people can grow from. People can have conversations, get to know you, know that you're just a normal person, just a kind person, whatever, you know. And I don't think that there's anything wrong with having a bigoted or biased view if it's something that you work on changing, if it's something you're open to change. Racism has hatred behind it. And I think what racism also has supremacy behind it. Mm -hmm. um and i find <laughs> i find these days now to be the most racist time i've ever lived in because of the hate and the supremacy or superiority yes because and how is okay. how is hate and superiority smuggled into anti-racism quote unquote it's all of it so People at the top. So there's grifters. Okay, there's... Yeah, <laughs> yeah the, the one in your story, the queen of hearts or whatever she was, yeah. Hmm. Um, <laughs> but there's there's grifters at the highest levels. Um, from what yeah. I understand, DEI really came into our schools when Obama came in. That's when it all started from... Hmm. Yeah. So um, I did not recognize that at all. So it was by watching papers um, that were done in 2015 that I that I saw some things coming in. So people, nothing bothers me more than being lied to. And so when people, black people, say you can never achieve while being in their mansions, while being married to royalty, while being you know, famous celebrities. When people say that no one else can achieve because they're black, that is, that is sick. I mean, it's, it's just lying. It's just, it's, it's lying. But the worst thing is, is that the people who believe it. And so what I believe all DEI is, is really just the practices that were used on African-Americans since the 1930s. So that's when... What um, do you mean practices? Like some sort of propagandistic practices? So before the 1930s, African-American families were intact. They had, they valued education a lot. So when they got out of slavery, they were, they were all about learning how to read, learning how to do for themselves, being self-sufficient. Um, they became, and I didn't even know this until like the last couple of years, but they became doctors and lawyers and judges. There's a place called Covert, Michigan, where blacks and whites lived and worked together. Blacks were the police, so that kind of puts to bed the narrative that African-Americans and policing have always, that policing has always been rooted in that. Um, and the reason I know these things is because I teach black history classes um, mm. for for a positive version of ethnic studies through the Woodson Center. Um, mm -hmm. And the reason that I teach them, because honestly, I believe that all history, I've never been a proponent of things like 
Black History Month or, you know, multicultural, multiculturalism the way it's being done now. Mm-hmm. But the goal is to divide people and to make them resentful. And that is what happened in first the Black community. I'm sorry, I'm I'm really blunt, but first the Black community, you know, we're the first people that I've ever seen that can make racial slurs about other people and it's totally acceptable whitey white demon bleach demon mm-hmm. just really things that that make me sick to my stomach to hear um but it's acceptable it's perfectly okay though there was even one person who said we don't like those words and they're like well that's part of our vernacular mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's mm-hmm. just it's sad, but it's also extremely reductive. And, I, and I'm very concerned that the forced acceptance really makes people more and more resentful behind closed doors. And I think that's why racism is getting worse. Because how many times can you listen to somebody say horrible things about you, beat you up, or just shame you before you begin to hate them? Mm-hmm. So, um, in ethnic studies, now my son is, my son looks like he's Irish. He is, (laughs) he's pale, red hair and freckled. Okay. Hmm. Um, when I saw in Washington, them say you need to identify as your biracial children need to identify as their oppressed side and reject their oppressive side. Hmm. Okay. That's great. That's a recipe for individuation and and a harmonious existence, an integrated psyche. For people who think that mental health, when they're saying mental health is the biggest crisis in America, you know, Hmm. along with white supremacy, um, telling kids to hate a portion of themselves. Hmm. So so I saw this and then I saw... um, our school was going to have both a kids of color and an African-American kids club at school, two separate clubs. And I lived in Snohomish. (laughs) So I was like the only person who looked like me out there. Hmm. You know, most of these kids are adopted by Microsoft and Google families. Oh, And so I called the school district and I said, I already teach drama here. I would be so happy to be the mentor. This was right after George Floyd. And I said, so what I imagine doing is putting posters up all over the room of achievements that these people, that, that the culture has, the people within the culture have accomplished. Um, and the principal said, let me stop you right there. And she said, we really want them to focus on their lived experience. And meaning, I just thought. Meaning what? Meaning, meaning this is the point of ethnic studies. And this is what okay. they want is ethnic studies. The point of ethnic studies is a double helix. First, to teach every child why they, why they are oppressed. So parents bring it in and they, they come in and they go, oh, that's wonderful. We're going to learn about Guatemalan culture. We're going to learn about, you know, Asia. We're going to learn about Europe. No. It is absolute social justice in your classroom. I call it social injustice or critical resentment theory. So the first Hmm. part is to teach your child to focus on why they are a victim. 
why they are oppressed. I don't know if you've ever seen, there's this wheel. Um, it's the wheel of oppression. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And um, I've seen it's a, it. It's a big pie. Uh, it's a redistribution pie. Yeah. Based on uh, past wrongs and future uh, shame-based uh, redistributive tactics. The, the newest one has about 200. It is really hard to nice. read it. And it, yeah. it's like, do your parents own a car? So, um, just really over the top. And then, and the circle always goes every single time, no matter how big, big it is. The people who are the most oppressive are always the white cisgender Christian male always. So, and then, and that doesn't matter because if you live in a community, you know, we, we pretend that there aren't communities in Georgia where African-Americans have been very, very wealthy for multiple decades. We pretend that, that those stories don't happen. And ethnic studies does not highlight those stories. So I've mm. been spending the last two months digging through ethnic studies. And they specifically do not highlight that because they want to highlight the voice of this so-called marginalized. Yeah, That's the first part. Yeah. The second part is to teach the kids how to rise up. Ah. So we got little tiny kids and you're like oh like this is yeast <laughs> under a wet blanket yes yes so and i'm so sorry i'm a high energy person and your your show is called conversation oh, you're doing very so. good you're doing very good i just like to crack <laughs> stupid jokes in the middle of it so one is to find a reason to be resentful and then two is to how to channel that energy outward in order to disrupt and dismantle the systems of oppression Yes. And so for little tiny kids, it'll be, oh, isn't this adorable? The kids are protesting because they want chocolate milk. So cute. And then it's, you know, let's, let's pretend that the puppies aren't getting adopted and let's carry signs through the school. So adorable. Oh, well, now we want to teach you how to be kind. And being kind means that even if your family has old ideas, old traditions, or old values, i.e. the four olds of China, um, mm. e yeah, so they want to remove the four olds. And so, and, and you are referencing a part of the Cultural Revolution under Mao's yes. China, where they made a list of the, f I guess, four things that needed to be yes demolished it was old in order for the old new customs, order old religions and old ideas i believe okay yes okay yeah and the yeah. same thing is happening in uh maoist america yes yes okay. and the reason that i found this out was like i said before i'm a pretty open-minded person and in 2020 i listened to a bunch of asian people speaking in bellevue mm. and they said where do we go from here we we ran away to get here and the thing is is that asian people and black people often do not speak to each other so hmm. the fact that they were so desperate that they were willing to have these conversations um and then i started documenting them so well, could you give me a little bit more context for this uh, these asian people speaking who were they speaking to they were speaking at Bellevue and they were, it was 2020. So it was about the election. Um, 
and they were one thing to know about immigrants is oftentimes they will not vote they don't trust the government for obvious reasons but they were immigrants refugees okay why would they not trust the government that took them in they don't trust the government because yes because of what they've been through before so they just are they value their liberty they want to be left alone yeah. So they want they want to be able to you know make money and and do the things that they've never been able to do before. Yeah. Okay. So, um. And in fact, one person after the election killed themselves because Asian. They, yes. Yes. Because why? Because they don't feel like they have. They feel like they're they're going back into the nightmare they came from. Okay. All right. And we're talking about Washington, and we're probably not just talking about the election of Joseph Biden, um, stellar leader of the free world. Uh, we're talking more about local politics as well in Washington and yeah. the implementation of various explicitly uh, communistic, mm-hmm. social justice Maoist policies and policymakers. Things that look just like what they left. Yeah. Okay. But, but well, with a, a Google Microsoft, uh, kind of, uh, level yes. of, uh, life, uh, like income and, and yes. amenities. Yeah. Yes. Yes. But what they started to realize was, um, and I don't know if you've interviewed Alvin Louie from Courage is a Habit. Yes. I think okay. Yeah. Yeah. We, when we spoke, he explained one of the things that he said was that they're being taught out of the same little book that their, their grandparents ran from. So, um, and then what I learned from that. So I, so I've been listening to a lot of people, especially from Asia getting their Mm -hmm. stories. Um, but another thing that Alvin had said, and like I said, I jumped so sorry. Um, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> when, I, when I said the thing about Asians and black people, he said, well, here's the thing. He said, when immigrants come here, they're even including African, right? They're thinking we are only one generation away from success. African-Americans are taught we're only one generation away from slavery, even though it's not really one generation, okay. <laughs> right? Yeah, so, okay. But yeah. they're taught to look backwards. Everybody else yes. is taught to look forward. They're taught to look backwards. And that's where the, that's where I think the root of, of lack of respect comes from. Yeah. And it's really sad because then the people on this side perpetuate the things that these people already think. Yeah. And I, I feel like it's watching what's happening in schools right now makes me believe that what happened to them for all of these decades was designed. Okay. So that, yeah, that's, that's something that we jumped off of and went circuitously back around and that's totally fine. I enjoy it. Uh, (laughs) I can, I can think like a spider web too. Um, Is that you propose that since the thirties, the black community in, in the United States of America was in a sense, the, uh, testing ground for, 
for progressive ideology. Uh, yes. Which would be not just to destabilize family, but to rather impose the state as the central organ of not yes. just control, but um, outcomes, foot. The, the state is the mother or the father. And yes. maybe the father, maybe the mother, depending on the culture. But so the, in order for the state to maintain its priority of um, influence over the individual, it needs to insert itself between the individual and the family, both uh, preceding and, and following. And then, and it does that through a narrative of helplessness, learned helplessness, victimhood, well, and then also uh, paybacks, right? So Yes, pay, and pay. also it comes, it came through literal communism. So what happened was that people realized that, that they could not, they could not take America down because of its values. So they had to look for a kind of weak link. And so what they did was they went to the African-American churches hmm. that were really focused on Christ and that was their focus, right? They, so they were yeah. Christians and it began to change within the church, the focus of biblical justice with social justice. Okay. Could, uh, do you have a reference, like a book or a study on this? Cause you're, you're we're starting to talk about history. So what groups, yeah. when could we get a little bit more specific or at least point <laughs> people to resources to hear? This yes. Story? Um, well, one thing that was very interesting to find out and I'll do not take, um, what I'm saying. Anyways, my, my YouTube channel used to be called Martin's daughter because I wanted to follow in the footprints of Martin Luther steps. I heard that Martin Luther King never used the name of Jesus when he preached ever. And people said behind closed doors that he was a socialist. So that's just one example. But what happened was, I want to call him the red priest. And hmm. um, so I believe the red priest um, came in and they started teaching the, the pastors of these groups how to be, um, how to focus on social justice, but they literally did come. They, this is KGB came here. Oh. oh, okay. So in terms of, and I, I wish Do we I know what era this then? Info. Is this like the fifties or well, it's, if it's KGB, yeah. it's gotta be post-war. So fifties, sixties, um, and maybe some sort of instigating of racial unrest in America yes. could be laid at the feet of, uh, so Manning Johnson, so. there we go. Sorry. I, okay. I wasn't prepared for that. No, that's okay. Manning Johnson wrote a book called color communism and common sense. Okay. Um, there's a brilliant channel called Fahrenheit. I think it's Fahrenheit 451, um, where he does, he reads the whole, the whole book and he, um, makes the video commentary with it but color communism and common sense and it shows how communism overtook the churches okay specifically so, the black churches the black churches and, then remember okay so the guinea pigs okay so the the black churches are the locus of seeding a narrative uh, a counter-american yes. narrative just yes. for lack of a better term right now because that's where the black people are learning their values congregating yeah. meeting but it, it seems like there. i'm sorry in control it, okay no yeah, yeah. continue no there's, there's 
there's also a lot of control. So when you go, when you attend many black churches, not all of them, I want to be very clear, there's some wonderful churches out there. But when you attend many churches, you are deferential to the pastor and the pastor's wife. Like they are okay. practically royalty. So okay. in yeah. some situations, they're called the first lady and first man. So, yeah. um, so, and so there's a lot of control. And somehow it's the only group that I've ever seen that's a faith-based group that can be overtly political. Well, I mean, if you look at like the 80s and, uh, you know, family values, uh, Christian right, um, their political yeah. force that they exerted over, I don't know, certain cultural uh, vectors uh, and all the good that that did them in the, in the ensuing years, it doesn't seem like any of their regress um, <laughs> no. combated the progress that we're on right now. But um, I think that... Well, no, because, yeah, I, I just want to challenge it a little bit because I yeah. know maybe overtly political rather than uh, covertly political, because I know that churches are just political by design and some are trying to be less or some trying to be more so. Well, I think they use they lose their tax exempt status if they endorse a candidate. OK, so, but black churches are very endorsey. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I mean, because uh, the black—if you can convince the black people through the churches that they're a voting block, then you, then they have political power as a voting block. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So, to forward the narrative that you're laying out, the black communities were infiltrated by communists by this red priest. You're saying. Yes, and I wish I could remember his name, but I just can't. So, <laughs> and one of the problems with social justice mentality that you were laying out with the ACE versus childhood um, experience score or wh mm -hmm. whatever it is, is that the church, the gospel, by focusing the individual and the community on the worship of one almighty God, the creator of everything. And a lot of key phrases in the Bible are about, you know, God is the judge and, and my job is to, to serve God and to build a family. Family is central to this. All, all of those core values, those core Christian values are in contradiction with communist values, which are the state is God. When, you know, most of the Old Testament is about you don't want a king, you don't want a state, you, I'm, I'm challenging you to be an independent people. Um, so how does that mix and how does that mutate? I think it, I think it's by kindness. I think it's by kindness. We are supposed to... Uh. As you know, as people of faith, you are supposed to take care of the widow. You are supposed yes. to and the orphan. Uplift and the downtrodden. Our, right, exactly. Yeah. And so I think that that's how it starts. But then also, hmm. it's also where victimhood becomes virtuous. So um, See, this is the thing I was just talking to Nina Paley about Christ and, you know, because Christ is the ultimate victim. So there is kind of a Christian there's a way of relating to the victim yeah. that Christ redeems and that social justice perverts. It takes the same kind of foundational values of charity, yes. of humility, of poverty, and it inverts it in a different way, in a satanic way, I guess, if we want to use the biblical terms. 
by making so it come with, true with, material. So with Christ, I think the, the basic is is that once he dies on the cross and you accept him as your savior, then you are redeemed. With social justice, there is no redemption. Ever. There ain't no redemption. <laughs> Try to make a gospel song about that. <laughs> so, and that's why it's so terrible because people are constantly doing the work. And so there's a difference between being a, in my opinion, there's a difference between being a Christian and being religious. And um, one thing that I've heard is that Christ came to wreck religion. Hmm. It was religious people. It was, it was religion that, you know, has caused so much hurt in the world. Hmm. And, um, and, Christ has brought a lot of hope. And so, and I'm trying not to be like, give my own personal opinions. You on can this. give your own personal opinions so, on this. You're but, totally but fine. But I'm trying here. to stick it to the, to the point of how the okay. church changes. Yeah. Okay. So it becomes from being a savior to being maybe an example of, or from being the savior to being maybe an example of a savior. Um, so it's not about salvation; it's about liberation. That's exactly. one way. Yeah, yeah. It's all about liberation. That's, yeah. that's emancipation. Yeah. Actually, ethnic studies is called liberated ethnic studies. Yeah, it's and that that's a very powerful mimetic device, especially in Black America, because America's story is about breaking those chains chains of, yeah. of slavery. It's about liberalism. It's about being emancipated. And if you can take that emancipation a step or two further, you get Marxism. Right. You, you basically, revolutionary. You basically break the chains off and walk right into another cage. Yeah. So, and, and if you can't, if you can't break the mental chains, you you don't even get to taste freedom. And that's the problem is that when they bring this stuff into schools, these kids are going to be mentally enslaved. That's what I see. So. What's the alternative then? I mean, what what's a real liberal framework or something that's not? If if you don't think liberalism itself is the framework, what what's the counter? No, I mean, I I, I think classical liberal is is the right route. So, which is how would you describe that or define that or promulgate that? I I always tell people to go backwards. So I think that. Hmm. What, so you are a aggressive, reactionary. <laughs> <laughs> well, where I mean by going backwards is we grew up with, I, I have an idea of where your age is. Um, so, um, but we grew up about the same time and mm -hmm. I, um, Sesame street, Mr. Rogers, you know, we were, we were taught simple truths. We were taught to be kind to each other. Um, I think that schools should teach to bring School should teach excellence and they should expect excellence. Mm -hmm. And if you have a person in your class who's maybe deaf or, you know, has some sort of special needs, then you cater to those special needs in a way that helps them, um, that helps them to reach where the other kids are as much as possible. You mm -hmm. do not break the rules and say, oh, your child has ADHD. They get five more hours on a test. 
So that's not the same as sitting next to a child who, you know, cannot write, but yet you're sitting there and this, I've done this, um, where you sit next to the child who, who cannot write and they tell you what you want to, what they want to say so that you're getting their, you're helping them reach their version of excellence. Mm -hmm. We're getting rid of excellence. We are adopting worst practices. So one example, um, literacy it's horrible right now so here in utah it's 16 percent one six percent for african-american students uh just literacy period not just like how far ahead they are no how far they can that uh, they can read it all okay uh 16 of could you yeah kids. could you expand on that yes. data so of kids 16 percent on their they get a school report card or or a state report card. And yeah. part of that is done by race. So 16% yeah. of African-American kids can read like at grade level. Okay, at grade level. Okay, over the so, course. Yeah. yeah. So this is not good. This well, is- and why? Um, is it just the school's fault or is it is it a culture of uh, disliking? I mean, because I know I've spoke with Hol- Coleman Hughes way back before he became the Coleman right. Hughes that we know and love today. Right. <laughs> and he was talking about the attitude within the black community, yes. specifically, you know, growing up that literacy school that was white. That yes. was being white. Exactly. To be, yeah, to be exactly. academically so adept at all is being quite. And we go backwards yeah. and we tell our kids about the stories of excellence. We tell our kids about the yeah. inventors, the doctors, and the lawyers before. We do not show them pictures of brains and then show them an ape's brain and then say, oh, white people used to think this of you. Okay. How would you even think as a kid? And I'm quoting something that's that I've seen in a book, Okay. How would you as a child, and they're like, oh, we just want to show them that that was the history. But if you're a kid and you're looking at that, you think it's not going to stick in your head that half this classroom thinks I have a monkey brain? I mean, this is some terrible worst practices. Why in the world would you do this to children? Well, I, you know, um, so uh, just a personal confession with the evergreen the advent of evergreen as a meme, I came onto the scene and did a bunch of things on YouTube and it was mostly about the race issue. And I spent, you know, as long as I did on the evergreen story immersed in the race issue and got really sick of it because it doesn't seem like I could do, I can make a dent at all in that narrative because, you know, I'm white, you know, it's just like, it, and plus it is so entrenched, like that the mechanism of m- keeping this thing yeah. alive is just so big. But I saw over the course of my time investigating that and being involved in that, that like uh, places like Clubhouse or sometimes on Twitter, you know, black Twitter, let's say, um, and that's just a euphemism for a lot of people who are black who use Twitter and they have kind of their own culture, a lot of memes. Like if you ever stumble into a Twitter thread that, and it's all like GIFs, like it's kind of like black people use the GIF a lot and they have max, <laughs> okay. they have probably have like half of their, half of their phone da- data is just like with saved GIFs and stuff like that. But you get into, and I just saw it the other day, I think it was yesterday, uh, just talking about the, I, it, it was a meme. So it was like the 
it was a picture of Superman and a picture of that guy from the boys who I don't know, like he's the Homelander, you know? So like you have like this, this okay. like righteous superhero of like, this is what America was taught in school, but this is the, his, the reality of America, which is this really cynical take of like right. a murderous, uh, self-obsessed, narcissistic, you know, power hungry individual. And, and it was kind of that, that, and I've, I've, I've been in Clubhouse, or I, I listened to Clubhouse, which is an app. That I don't even know if it's still around. I think it is. But you have a lot of the black community commiserating over the fact that they can't get ahead, that they can't do anything, that they are oppressed. Mm-hmm. And, and, and they, they come together as a community, and they kind of focus on that. And whenever somebody in that community, a black person comes on and says, listen, I'm making millions of dollars a year. Like if you guys just like figured out how to like use this thing called the free market, you're free. You can liberate yourself, but you guys are actually running into the chains and you're perpetuating this change. So the frustrating thing about this conversation is that I can't even comment on that because that itself is perpetuating, you know, this divide. So I, it just like, how could I ever, I can, I can say this is puerile. This is really damaging that the schools are doing this, right? but there's an addiction in that community to that version of, of the story of the narrative that's really entrenched. Right. Maybe somebody like you, but I know just like with the feminist arguments, and I shouldn't say that, <laughs> that you, you would be cast out by having different ideas. You would be like the, 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 stru- the ideological structure will automatically purge you from itself because if you don't adhere to these tenets of it and these beliefs, beliefs, you're, you, you're, you know, uh, Hannah Nicole Jones or, Right. was the author of 1690s. Like, yeah, there's there's two types of black. There's politically black, and then there's just black as a race. Yes. And so you we can't even be black. We want black faces that aren't black voices. We don't, we don't yeah. want black faces that aren't black voices. That's true. So you It's just wrong. really frustrating. So I, 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 yes. so I don't even know if I can comment on it. And so yes. the conversation itself, no, like, I, like there's nothing to. I can do. Right? This is the th- this is the thing, and and I, yes, you have to. I'm I'm not. I mean, you obviously don't have to, but if we want to make a difference, then we must not cave into the manipulation. We must not cave into the gaslighting. We we can't. So we hmm. have to say, yeah, I don't believe your stuff. I think you're crazy, and I'm going to keep going. So that's hmm. you're right. I so. PBS had me on a couple of like last year. Really? And you made it to PBS. Okay. This is going to be interesting. I wonder what they, Oh wow. This is going to be interesting. So, but th- this is just PBS Utah, but yes. So I was on, okay. I was P- PBS Utah. Okay. Um, and they were having a conversation and it went fine. They wanted me to represent the true conservative. And on the break, they said, wow, you're much more intelligent than we expected you to be. <laughs> you know, and these are these are two black men who are talking to me, and I'm just sitting there going, "How is that acceptable?" So that's one. Now they're doing a new episode, and on this episode, they want to talk about ethnic studies. Mm-hmm. They are having one person on, who is she is the golden child of Utah's voice of reason for black people. Oh. She goes. She goes to our schools and she tells, she teaches microaggressions. She runs a social justice school. They reached out to the group that I work with and said, we want somebody to come and speak about ethnic studies. And they they said, that's fine. We'll send care up. And they said, literally anyone but her. 
they are making the person who goes on answer a whole list of of questions to make sure they have the right narrative that they don't step over that line and make anybody feel uncomfortable and that the other person with their social justice all black school maybe it's all people of color but there's no white people not even on the staff hmm. of this school it's insane I, I, wow. I, I find it completely insane but i want to yeah. flip that and say okay. there's hope though because even in that one little episode that I did, people started sending me messages and going, how do you have the strength? Like, we know that living here, we are, this is what's expected of us. Hmm. I said, well, what do you expect of yourself? And so people are starting to open up their eyes. They had that whole um, race replacement theory, white people are afraid of replacement, whatever stuff, right? Um, but as they watch more and more people come across the border, they're starting to go, wait a second, are we no longer significant? And so they're mm. starting to wake up there. But for white people, hmm. and I hate that term because white I people. Just, I'm like, <laughs> my husband is white. My son might as well be white. Like, I just, yeah. this is not a thing for me. And I, I think... I'd like to believe it's still not a thing for many, many people, but I don't know how you keep it from being a thing when it's so constant and in your face, when people oh, yeah. can say and do this stuff. I think that if I were in those shoes, I would step back. I would be like, oh, oh, I can't, but, but you have to, because you have to show, just like I had to show that boy at the water fountain, you know? Yeah, I don't, it's it's very simple. And I honestly think that just like when I go into certain places, people will say, well, you're like a breath of fresh air. You don't hate us? What? You know, mm. I think that the the opposite has to be taught. Yeah, I, I, I remember that that meme photo of like this uh, very unappealing Sorry, but like she she's not dressed well. I know she's a black woman. About, yes, and she's, she's got like white she, people are evil, and yes. uh, you know PayPal oh, me. You yes, should say it's okay to be white. PayPal me. That's what you should do. That's that should be your brand. <laughs> I actually have had people say, "Oh, can I PayPal you?" Because I feel like if you if you talk, you should be reimbursed. Hmm. Like you you are stripping the human condition off of people. When you would you do that to another? person that looks like you why mm. why do we have to be so different and that is because that's the narrative that's being told to manipulate us to separate us to divide us mm. and that's wow. why i say go backwards, go backwards. There, there ain't nothing racist about a tip jar honey <laughs> <laughs> okay <laughs> yes that's yeah i know okay i'm so that that also comes down to growing up poor like, I feel like, because uh. people will say, can I support you in this? But it's not the same. It's not like, like people will re respond on my YouTube channel and they'll say, can I, can I do something? And I'm like, I don't have anything set up for that. I'm barely able to hit Zoom. <laughs> but, mm -hmm. um, but, but that's different than people wanting my black girl wisdom. Oh, the magic. Oh, you, so you still I'm get a little bit of that. Self. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's the magic thing. black lady. Yeah. yeah. I'm like, I'm just, I'm, I'm not for sale. I'm trying. I'm, I'm trying to do what is right. And I believe what's doing 
to do what is right means that you shout from as many rooftops as you can. You are driving off a cliff. Hmm. And so are you, go ahead. No, sorry. The worst thing. No, I, worse than us driving off a cliff is the people who've checked out of parenting and it's just inconvenient for them. So they're letting their kids be driven off a cliff before they're old enough to make the choices for themselves. So, I mean, you are doing what you can as an independent operative to push uh, against uh, what you see to be a uh, civilization-ending ideology, if I may just yeah. put it a fine point on it. But very quickly, I'm sure we all have to realize, well, I got to be organized in some way or I have to offer, are you developing a curriculum? Are you ordering your thoughts? Like what, what process are you undergoing over the last few years to oh. mount a tactical and strategic pushback? Well, people have started to notice that I stand up against this stuff. So mm -hmm. I work with a group called Utah Parents United and how that happened was I saw our governor not say no to critical race theory in a red state. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and I just thought, why would he not do that? So I reached out to this group and I said, I would love to teach teenagers. I just want to teach them what's going on. I just want to teach them the Marxist roots of what's happening here. Mm -hmm. And they said, absolutely come out and teach. So I taught a class for about a month and, um, Critical I, resentment theory? Is that what you called it? Yeah. <laughs> yes. So I, I, yeah, well, that's one of the things that I call it. But that one, I was, I basically told them that if you are ever asked to write your pronouns down, feel free to write, I am not interested in your liberal indoctrination. So, <laughs> hmm. Um, hmm. so, and I just explained to them, I said, you know, there are so many African Americans and other Americans who have succeeded this is based on hate but not only is this based on hate let's look at let's look at the profit that these organizations have made and so mm. i'm as as honest as i can and also as hopeful as i can like i want these kids to know that they are loved and that they matter and we have really like i've showed them the will of privilege and mm -hmm. we've we've had some really um really deep discussions and they've you know most of my students are white so um and i just let them ask me anything nothing is off limits whatever you want to know you know i've had little kids ask me sorry um i've had little kids ask me things like um they'll say my daddy says you have different hair than me i do but you want to feel it so i do the opposite of these stupid DEI trainings and microaggressions, I actually give people the benefit of the doubt and think that most people are curious. And most people, another thing that I do is, so it's, I am trying to answer your question, but another thing mm -hmm. that I do is I play Harriet Tubman. I put on her costume and I go to the different festivals and I tell her story because I want the story to be told from a place of, I don't hide history. 
So I tell the gross, awful things that happen, but I also tell, like when I say, you know, she's running through the woods um, and being hidden in farms and good white people help her and free black people help her and, you know, whatever I can to bring unity into the story. Hmm. So um, the curriculum that I use is 1776 Unites from the Woodson mm-hmm. Institute. Mm-hmm. So I, um, I work with them and I tell those stories and I always just start with that place of, you're going to hear the term safe space a lot of times in your life, but this is genuinely a safe space, which means that anybody can ask any question. There isn't judgment. Like just, we, if we don't have these kind of conversations, we will lose our sense of humanity towards each other. We will put ourselves into the boxes that other people, hmm. that, you know, elites want us to be in. Mm-hmm. So that's um that's what i do and then i i interview people and i um especially people who've escaped communism Hmm. and i try to um like add imagery and to tell their stories as beautifully as i can i started off with interviewing people who'd aged out of foster care but sadly um, a lot of people in that category realized that there was virtue and victimhood. And so my idea of age out, rise up, people weren't interested in rising up anymore hmm. because they just wanted the handout. They hmm. wanted the reparation. Hmm. So. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, yeah, there's a there's a price to be paid for that handout. Yeah. I I mean, the cliche is freedom isn't free. Mm-hmm. So, and honestly, I think that because people will say, well, how can you, how can you do this? Like I'll, I'll go to the Capitol and those groups will shove me. I mean, it is, they're, they're pretty vicious and, um, or they'll get on Twitter and say my black or my anti-blackness is showing. Mm. And I just, am like, I'm just pro-human. That's mm. it. So, um, but I am upset and I do think that African-Americans have a right to be upset, but they need to turn that anger towards the people that deserve it, towards the people who've told them that they are incapable of passing tests, that they cannot read. You know, if... I believe that if if these kids were to go into classrooms, and and I've been torn because some people have said, well, don't you think we can teach our kids the best? And my pro-humanness is like, no, I want a freaking rainbow of everybody, (laughs) you Mm. know, all all, like loving each other, being kind and contributing to society. But like you said, if that, if the damage has been done and it's so embedded that they can only trust people who look like them, then what do you do? I'm very nervous because we're starting a school scholarships at $8,000 per kid. And I'm very nervous that the social justice crowd is going to get that money and the damage that that can happen, that can happen to those kids. Uh, what do you mean, eight thousand dollars scholarships to what? To eight thousand uh, school choice. Okay. 
Okay. So, yeah. Yeah. You know, and so I absolutely support school choice. I, our schools are dumpster fire. Um, but I would be very, very nervous that, hmm. you know, they're going to become BLM schools. Uh, yeah. I mean, if it is a free market, then you'll have your Marxist educations. You'll have your Catholic educations. Maybe you'll have a couple of, or a few 1776 educations. Right? Yeah. Maybe classical yeah. classical schools might might take a a rise. Maybe. There's a brilliant brilliant school called the Piney Ridge School and it's been around for about 200 years, I think mean, 200 years and they were so poor that they literally split logs down and they did their homework over the logs. Hmm. And this school um the, the the principal of it today is on the Woodson board these kids come from the worst situations it's a boarding school mm -hmm. and their success stories are through the roof but you have to ask why then if their success stories are through the roof are we not implementing them why are we taking the best practices away from our kids yeah well i mean it's uh it's um bothersome to have a bunch of individuals that are self-determined it's much more safe for bureaucracies and and incredibly complex systems to have compliant and reliant cogs so so i have another question on that then hmm. so if behind closed doors people are becoming more and more resentful is it possible that Everybody thinks that this whole woke movement is anti-white. But as black people become... No, I want to change those words. As <laughs> as black people are more um, featured for acting ignorantly, for jumping on cars, for um, twerking in the streets, having sex in the streets, whatever else, as they are featured or highlighted as being more and more savage, then is it possible that they are, uh, that they are being turned into something that lots of people will find disp disposable? I think at the root of your question is if this social justice stuff isn't just as anti-white as anti-black as it is anti-white it's anti-white by demoralizing and you know ridiculing and mocking and and trying to instill a sense of self-depreciation and shame in the white population and then also giving license to the uh impulsive nature of this other community right uh, you know like so yeah. like it's capitalizing on white guilt and then capitalizing on black resentment and but both groups are just being given over to their lower natures. Like just everybody's being denigrated. So it is not just anti-white or anti-black, but anti-human, anti-society, anti-civilization. But I think it's going to be easy to turn on, on the black people if they can, if, if this continues to be the narrative. I think yeah. Yeah. It's, 
I mean, when when you look at it, I mean, if the eight, what what if you do go to follow the intersectional math down, and you say, okay, there is going to be some sort of tribal nature to the, to this. Yep. Hispanics as a group are going to say, we don't want to have anything to do with this other group over here, and they yep. this uh, you know, this is why I don't like even talking about this issue because it just right. sounds racist. But you know, because yes, we're thinking in terms of race, so the Hispanics right. are like, okay, well, the blacks are getting all the money, all the attention, and acting like savages so we're not going to be on the uh, black side and the Asians are like well I guess we're going to have to team up, up with the whites because at least they uh, don't rob our stores and appreciate our math abilities uh, you know like right like we're just right. talking stereotypes and the whites right. are like uh, well I guess some Hispanics are okay blacks da, 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 and we're just all kind of like Mexican standoffy and then who get, who benefits Quibono and, and people will constantly say, well, why do you care so much? My school board will say that. Why does she care so much? And I'm huh. like, because I feel like I need to wear a shirt that says, don't shoot me. I don't hate you. Everywhere huh. I go. That's yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I am like, that's, yeah. that is an exhausting way to live your life. Yeah. Geez. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. The downstream effects of the Naima of, uh, you know, uh, yeah. of the authoritative black woman is like this authoritative black woman's going to come in here and hate me and, and try yeah. to grift on me. And you're like, no, I don't want to do that. So you have to contend with this newfangled negative black stereotype. Well, and, and here they do uplift the grifters. They, they do, they, they want them in their schools. They want mm. them to tell their narrative because mm -hmm. it makes them feel, I think, as long as we're putting someone else down, as long as we're showing, as long as we're pointing out someone else's problems, then we're the ones who are absolved. Mm, mm -hmm. We don't have to worry about test scores because it's all whiteness. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> problem. so true. Yes. Demanding high test scores is white. Yeah. Yeah. So how can people find you and revel in your content? <laughs> my, my channel is called Be Not Afraid with mm. Carib Marcel. It's long but um yeah and i had somebody say you seem afraid of everything so i just want to hit that i'm not <laughs> afraid in the long term of everything because yeah. i am a person of faith um doesn't mean that everything that i talk about is faith related by a long shot but i'm very concerned about where society is going and what we are giving to our kids Mm -hmm. So Ben, thanks so much for having me. I don't know if to go by Benjamin, but thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Karim. Thank you so much. It was really wonderful to meet you. And, you too. Uh, to have uh, this conversation. Absolutely. Thank you.